Um, I'd like to welcome everybody to the Leon Blitzer, uh, Blitzer Award Ceremony. My name is Elliot Chu. I'm the Associate Dean of the College of Science. And this is actually a very special event. Um, many of you, and uh, Schumann will in say more about it, but Leon Blitzer was a faculty member in the Department of Physics for, I think, about 40 years, a little over 40 years, and had a real impact both on the research and also on the teaching. So today's award is recognizing Ken Johns for both his excellence as a teacher as well as a researcher. Um, and I will introduce you to him in a second. I just want to say uh, from a personal note, I've known Ken since I got here. Uh, we work in the same field in particle physics. And um, from a personal note, he is one of the hardest working people I've ever met in my life. So I hope you'll, you'll get a, a sense of that today from Ken's presentation. At this time, I'd like to introduce the department head of physics, Dr. Shumit Muzumdar. I was going to introduce Ken, but let me say a few words about Professor Blitzer. I mean, you already see this wonderful thing that we have been given. Uh, what impresses me the most, because actually by the time most of us, are those of us who are in the physics department now, arrived in the department, Professor Blitzer had already retired. Uh, what's most impressive to me is that this thing says quite explicitly that Professor Blitzer was one of the, one of the most important drivers for the PhD program that we have. Obviously, I mean, this award ceremony, etc., everything would have been meaningless if we didn't have that program. It also says, if one goes through his biography, there was a point when he was one third of the department by himself, <laughs> which, was, which is quite interesting. We uh, are having three faculty searches this year. So that's about that size. Let me uh, also say that I'm very grateful to uh, Charles and Mimi Bletzer for establishing this award. This is the ninth Bletzer Award. It has been going on since 2006. So thank you very much. And let me now say a few things about Ken. Uh, he got his PhD in 1986 from Rice University. He did a postdoc for three years in the University of Minnesota. Uh, he was an NSF Presidential Young Investigator Award, awardee. And it should not be surprising, given that this is a teaching award, that this is not the only teaching award he got. He received both the Excellence in Undergraduate Teaching Award as well as the Excellence in Graduate Teaching Award of the Physics Department, and uh, has been a member of the ATLAS team, which was involved in the discovery of the Higgs boson. That's what we'll hear about today. So without further ado, I thought we give it, we give it in the beginning? I'm sorry. <laughs> sorry about that. Even though I attended this last year, so. So he gets it even before your talk. So I'm so delighted to be here this year. Last year uh, I, I missed this, and my brother Charles got to say a few words. So um, walking up here, he said I could say a few words this year. So thank you. Um, we, we are thrilled to be able to come here to Tucson um, every year to do this. First, it's a wonderful excuse to come back home and see our friends and family. And secondly, um, you know, this is a passion of my, my parents was teaching, certainly my dad, that he was a researcher, he was a physicist, he was a consultant, but I think his passion was teaching. Um, and we don't recognize teachers in that aspect of our professional academic careers very much. And what he liked the most, I think, when I think back is 
um, not only teaching but allowing his students to develop their creativity and imagination um, and giving, getting the most pleasure out of seeing his students succeed in their professional careers going forward. So we're thrilled. Um, I'm going to let Charles present the award. Okay. Here you go. Um, most important, here's a beautiful plaque, at least I think it's very beautiful and well-deserved. And um, a little token of the appreciation that Mimi and I and all the other supporters of this award have for you. I want to uh, congratulate you and look forward to uh, hearing about not just Higgs, but what comes next. Okay, uh, thank you very much. Uh, I'd also like to add my thanks to Mimi and Charles Blitzer for their generosity in establishing this award and more important, this uh, lecture series. I'd also like to thank Sumit Mazumdar and the physics department for uh, promoting me for this award. And finally, I'd like to thank my mom, Jerry, and partner, Julie, for their constant love and support. So let's get at it. Uh, today, I will talk to you about the Higgs boson and what possibly might lie beyond. Uh, some of you in the audience might remember hearing about the discovery of the Higgs boson at CERN in July of 2012. Uh, there was worldwide coverage in the media, both in print and on TV, and that's really pretty amazing for a science experiment to receive. Just last October, the Nobel Prize in Physics was awarded to Francois Englert and Peter Higgs, shown here. And it was awarded for uh, the theoretical discovery of a mechanism that contributes to our understanding of the origin of the mass of subatomic particles, and which recently was confirmed through the discovery of the predicted fundamental particle by the ATLAS and CMS experiments at the CERN's uh, Large Hadron Collider. I'm a member of the ATLAS experiment at CERN, and certainly we were very happy for uh, Englert and Higgs, and we're also pleased that the discovery of the Higgs boson uh, was mentioned in the citation. So sometimes I think, though, there's a bit of fuzziness that surrounds the discovery of the Higgs boson, and hopefully I'll try to bring a little clarity of that today. I'd also like to convince you that the discovery of the Higgs is not just something that takes place in a faraway lab in Switzerland, uh, but also impacts your everyday life as well. And finally, at the end of the talk, I'll try to give some possibilities as to what might lie beyond uh, the Higgs boson. So in particle physics, uh, the big picture is basically to try to discover the most basic building blocks in the universe and the interactions between them. And oftentimes, we do that using powerful microscopes called uh, particle accelerators. The idea is, if that we could discover the most basic building blocks, then we could just use the laws of physics in order to uh, calculate, basically, the phenomena that occurred from slightly after the Big Bang uh, until the present day. 
And in fact, such a theory does exist, and we call it the standard model of particle physics. So back in the 1800s, Dalton uh, proposed that all matter was made of atoms. And then a little bit later on in the early uh, 1900s, uh, it was realized that atoms themselves were composite and consisted of a nucleus of neutrons and protons uh, surrounded by a cloud of electrons. Then in the uh, mid-19, uh, in the 20th century, we discovered that the protons and neutrons themselves were composed of even smaller particles. Those smaller particles are called the quarks. So for example, the proton is made of two up quarks and a down quark, and there's a bunch of gluons holding the, the whole thing together. Uh, just as a side note, uh, one of the things that might lie beyond the Higgs boson uh, is being searched for by Mike Shoup. And basically, his research at Atlas concerns asking the question, perhaps the quarks themselves are composite particles and made of even uh, smaller entities. So he's furiously analyzing the data to try to answer that question. So today, our table of fundamental particles looks something like this. So there are six quarks, including the up and down quark. There's six so-called leptons, including the electron and the electron neutrino. And uh, it turns out that most everyday matter consists of really just this first column here. You really need like particle accelerators or cosmic ray interactions in order to produce these other quarks and leptons. In addition to the quarks and leptons, there's a set of force carriers we call them gauge bosons, uh, such as the photon, the gluon, and the W and Z boson. And these particles are responsible for the fundamental forces in nature. So right now, we think that there are four fundamental forces in nature. One of these is gravity. Gravity, of course, is responsible for the large-scale structure that we observe in the universe. However, the force between uh, two fundamental particles, the force of gravity between two fundamental particles is actually pretty puny. And so for most of the lecture, uh, I'm going to neglect gravity, but we'll come back to it at the end. Now, unfortunately, gravity did not win Best Picture at the Oscars this year. However, I think there's a lot of people in this department anyway, astronomy, that think that gravity should win uh, Best Force in Nature because of the beautiful structures of galaxies and clusters of galaxies uh, that gravity produces. Another force is electromagnetism. Uh, this is the force that's responsible essentially for holding you up in your seats. And actually, a big success in physics was to unify two different forces. It unified electricity, like given here by lightning, and uh, magnetism. And it did that through something called Maxwell's equations. But the bottom line is it took two different phenomena and showed that they were really had a common origin. They were really just one force called electromagnetism. So finally, there's two other forces in nature. One's called the strong force. This is the force that occurs between uh, the quarks. And this is also the force that's responsible uh, for holding the nucleus together. It's responsible, partially responsible, for nuclear power, if you will. 
Finally, there's something called the weak force, and the weak force can occur either between quarks or between leptons. And an example of the weak force is beta decay, uh, which is just a form of radioactivity. Now, classically, a force arises through the interaction of a mass or an electric charge with some field. So for example, Newton's apple fell because there was a mass, the mass of the apple, interacting with the gravitational field. In quantum field theory, however, we view forces as arising through the exchange of particles, through the exchange of these force carriers. So for example, the electromagnetic interaction arises, say, between two electron, electrons, uh, rises through the exchange of a photon. The weak force arises through the exchange of a W or Z boson. And finally, the strong force arises through the exchange of a, a gluon. So uh, a picture maybe to keep in your mind is, imagine that there's two skaters that are tossing a ball back and forth. So they're going to feel a repulsive force because they're you know, throwing and catching the ball. In fact, we can take this a step further. Imagine that this ball is very light. That means the skaters could be much further apart and still catch the ball, i.e. still experience the force. Or you can imagine that the ball would be very heavy, like a bowling ball. In that case, the two skaters would have to be very close together, and so the resulting force uh, would have to be short range. So that's good. You've just learned a little bit of quantum field theory. It's the same thing. In quantum field theory, if the mass of that exchanged particle is very heavy, then that means the resulting force has a short range or reach. So uh, what are shown here are Feynman diagrams, which are basically our ways of visualizing the interactions that are occurring. Uh, they're also used as a calculational tool, but we're not going to do any calculations today, so uh, breathe easy. So for example, this is electromagnetism, and it arises through the exchange of a photon. This is the weak force, and it arises through the exchange of a Z boson. Now looking at these pictures, and they look kind of similar, and so the idea is maybe these two forces can also be unified in the same way that electricity and magnetism were unified. And that's a great idea, but there's one little problem in that the electromagnetic force has essentially, well, has an infinite range or reach, whereas the weak force has a very, very short range. Hey, but that's okay because you know now how to produce a force with a short range. You basically give the exchange particle uh, a large amount of mass. So the goal in particle physics is to try to unify the weak and electromagnetic uh, forces, just as we unified electricity and magnetism. And so uh, to do that, we need a theory. And hopefully that theory will be condensed enough that you can put it on like a coffee mug or t-shirt. That's for uh, merchandising purposes. And uh, theorists actually came up with uh, such a theory. And that theory is based on something called local gauge symmetry. Now before you start to get all panicky, uh, symmetry in physics is just as you would expect. So if you consider like a circle, shown here, and you rotate that circle, then you know, the new circle, if you will, looks just like the old circle. 
It's the same thing in physics. If you do a physics experiment and you rotate it, then the results of that new experiment really aren't any, are not any different than the results of the initial experiment. So this local gauge symmetry is, I'm not going to give the details of it, but just keep in your mind that it's a symmetry kind of like that rotational symmetry. So uh, the unification of the weak and electromagnetic forces is based on this thing called local gauge symmetry. And that turns out to be a really good thing. And that's because requiring nature to respect this symmetry demands or requires that the photon exist. It demands or requires that the W and Z particles exist. That's pretty good. We know why the photon exists. It's because nature likes this local gauge symmetry. However, there's a, some bad news associated with that. In order for this local gauge symmetry to work, all the particles in the theory, the W and the Z and all the quarks and leptons, can't have any mass or the symmetry is destroyed. So we have like all, a beautiful theory. We have all the makings of a great theory, except everything in it has to be massless. So that's where Englert and Higgs come into the picture. Uh, they added a new ingredient to the theory, and that ingredient is called the Higgs field. And so through something called the Higgs mechanism, uh, they showed how interactions of the Higgs field with the W and Z particle, with the quarks and leptons, enabled them to acquire a mass. So that was their big contribution. Now what about the Higgs boson? The Higgs boson is just an excitation of that Higgs field. So uh, an analogy might be the following. Think about the ocean. The ocean is like the Higgs field. An excitation in that ocean would just be a wave, and that's what the Higgs boson is, just an excitation of that field. In fact, we can go a step further. You know, If we observe the Higgs boson, if we discover the Higgs boson, then we can infer that the Higgs field exists. Just as if you, you know, see a large ocean wave, you can certainly infer that the ocean exists as, as well. So I just wanted to give a little idea of what's going on. So initially, all the particles in the universe were massless, and they were flying around at the speed of light. But then shortly after the Big Bang, the Higgs field came into existence. So that's little sparkly things there. And they began, began to interact with the particles. And the interaction caused those particles to have speeds now less than the speed of light. And hence, it's as if they acquired a mass. Furthermore, when you have, for example, collisions between two protons, you can excite that field, producing a Higgs boson. And how we discover that Higgs boson uh, is what I'll talk about next. So the importance of the Higgs boson is that, or the importance of the Higgs boson and the Higgs field, is that they're really at the foundation of the standard model. And their discovery uh, took over 20 years of different accelerators and uh, different experiments. So why is the Higgs boson important? Well, hopefully you've, you've learned that the Higgs boson gives you mass, right? Higgs boson walks into a church, priest says, I'm sorry, you're not really welcome here. 
Higgs boson says, well, you have to let me in because uh, without me you can't have a mass. So that's about as good as physics humor gets, by the way, so <laughs> it's going to be downhill from there. Now, I do want to correct one uh, misconception that uh, does frequently come up. The Higgs boson is not responsible for your mass. Uh, for that, you can either blame the fact that quarks and gluons are confined into protons, perhaps the cookie you had after lunch. Uh, know that what the Higgs field is responsible for are the masses of the fundamental particles. Uh, so that's why it's important. So how do we discover the Higgs boson? Well, the Higgs boson is relatively massive. And so in order to create it, we need a lot of energy. But Albert Einstein told us how to, how to do that. So we have E equals mc squared. If you create a lot of energy, then you can create a lot of mass. And that's what we use the CERN Large Hadron Collider for, basically to create a lot of energy so we can create a lot of mass. Now, after the Higgs boson is created, it doesn't hang along, along, around very long. It immediately vanishes. So in order to try to discover the Higgs boson, you need a really good, really fast digital camera. And that's what the ATLAS detector uh, is. It's just an extremely uh, exquisite digital camera. So turning now to the LHC, uh, the LHC uh, is located outside of Geneva, Switzerland here. Uh, its ring circumference is 27 kilometers, uh, bordering France and Switzerland. Uh, the energy of the LHC in 2012 was 8 trillion electron volts. Uh, and that came about because we're colliding two 4 trillion electron volt proton beams. So in fact, actually, the word hadron here is just a general term that means proton. So if you want to call it the Large Proton Collider, hey, that's, that's fine with me. Uh, and what is a trillion electron volt? Well, the energy of like a flying mosquito corresponds to about one trillion electron volts. So that, that really doesn't seem like very much, but imagine that all of that energy is just concentrated in one particle, in one proton, and it actually uh, is an enormous amount of energy. Now, actually, the design energy of the LHC is 14 uh, TeV, or 14 trillion electron volts. And why we're not running there, I'll explain in a, in a minute. Uh, the cost of the LHC was about 4.6 billion Swiss francs, which today's uh, currency is about $5 billion, which is about the same uh, cost as a Nimitz-class aircraft carrier. So when you see the LHC, uh, just think of an aircraft carrier. Now, sometimes we describe particle accelerators as microscopes. And the reason we do that is because in order to make an image of something that's small, we need a beam. And that beam could be uh, light or photons, as in the case of a microscope. That beam might be a beam of electrons, as in the case of an electron microscope. Or that beam could even be protons, such as are produced in the LHC. So the smaller the wavelength associated with these different beams allows one to resolve smaller and smaller features. So in fact, using protons at the LHC essentially allows us to resolve features of a size less than 10 to the, 19, 10 to the minus 18th meters, so incredibly tiny. Uh, the, LH, uh, the LHC itself 
is 100 meters uh, under the surface of the Earth. There's a number of different experiments, but there's four major ones. There's ATLAS, which is the experiment I'll talk about today. There's our competitors, uh, CMS. And then there's two other more specialized experiments, LHCb, that does physics using B quarks, and ALICE, which specializes in collisions of heavy ions. So if you collide like two lead-lead uh, ions together, then ALICE is, is your detector. The protons in the LHC are kept in circular orbit by means of superconducting dipole magnets. There's about 1,200 of them. They're 15 meters long. Uh, the field of these magnets is uh, 8 tesla, and so that's about 1,000 times stronger than your kitchen magnet. So they're incredibly strong magnets. In fact, in order to make a field, a magnetic field of that size, you have to have a current of, say, 12,000 amps inside each of these magnets. And that's about the current of a small lightning bolt. So keep in your, you know, keep in your mind that in each magnet here, uh, we have contained a small lightning bolt. So certainly at about a week after the LHC started running, there was an incident uh, in the LHC tunnel. Obviously, the uh, lightning bolt escaped. And it turned out that the reason that the lightning bolt escaped was because of the electrical connections between uh, adjacent dipole magnets. So uh, poor design, poor welding uh, associated with the electrical splices uh, between adjacent magnets effectively allowed that lightning bolt out and caused extensive damage in the LHC tunnel. About 50 magnets were damaged and had to be replaced. In fact, it took over a year in order for the LHC to uh, resume operations. And in fact, that's today why we're not running at the full energy of the LHC. It was thought that the safest that we could, the highest energy that one could safely run would be 8 trillion electron volts, not the design energy of, of 14. And so that's why we're not at uh, full energy today. So here's our digital camera. It's a little bit larger than the one you have at home. Uh, here's some physicists up here for scale. Now, this looks like a rather complicated uh, digital camera, but actually there's really just three major subsystems. There's an inner tracker here that allows one to measure the position and momentum of all charged particles. Then there's calorimeters that measure the energy and position of all particles. And then outside of that, there's an extensive uh, muon system that measures the position and momentum of muons. Now, Another thing that in addition to making precision measurements of these objects, by looking at the response of the different particles uh, in these different subsystems, we can actually identify the particles as, as well. So here's just a pie slice of that same detector. Here you can see the inner tracker. Here's the calorimeter. Here's the muon system. Uh, now today I'll be talking mainly about photons. And a photon is identified by just an energy blob, that's this thing here, in the electromagnetic calorimeter. And because the photon doesn't have any charge, then there's no track in the inner tracker. Something that looks like a photon is the electron. It also deposits an energy blob. 
in the electromagnetic calorimeter, but it has an associated track. So by playing these games, looking at the response of different particles in the detector, you can tell you know, a photon from an electron, from a muon, from a proton. So that's how we identify different particles. So back to the size of the Atlas detector, just to give you some idea, I placed it in a familiar football stadium here. So next time you're at the UA Stadium, you can envision uh, the Atlas detector sitting there. So at UA, we built several different pieces of the Atlas experiment. Uh, John Rutherford and his team built something called uh, the forward calorimeter. Uh, Elliot Chu and I worked on some electronics for a different type of de detector called the CSC muon uh, detectors. That's these copper color detectors here. And actually here you can see the CSCs mounted on what we call the small wheel as it's being lowered, and we're not allowed to say dropped, uh, as it's being lowered 100 meters down into the Atlas cavern. In addition to the electronics, we also developed all the software to calibrate uh, and monitor the CSC detectors. Now you would think that doesn't really sound like the most exciting thing in the world, but consider this. Here's a Higgs boson candidate that decayed into two Zs that then decayed into four muons. And here you can see in blue the four muon tracks. Now if you look closely, two of those muon tracks actually go through the CSC chambers. So if we hadn't spent the time to calibrate those detectors, if we hadn't spent the time uh, to monitor those detectors, then it's likely we would have missed this event uh, and many others like them. So putting it all together, at the LHC looks something like this. So at the LHC, there's actually several uh, accelerators, and the energy as they pass through each accelerator is increased. Before the LHC, there's something called the SPS. When they enter the LHC, you'll see in a moment, they are bent by the superconducting magnets. Those were the field equations to tell them what to do. So here's the protons there. We just went from France into Switzerland. Now remember I told you that protons are actually made of more fundamental units called quarks. So when you have collisions between protons, you actually have collisions between quarks. Here you can see the two protons about to collide in the center of our digital camera atlas. E equals mc squared. You can therefore, with a lot of E, produce particles of a lot of different masses. Hopefully you've caught on that, oh, there's two green energy blobs here in the electromagnetic calorimeter. Those are, of course, uh, the photons. So uh, the Higgs boson, when it immediately vanishes, it doesn't just vanish completely. It actually can decay into other types of particles. And in particular, the Higgs boson was discovered mainly with one particular decay, and that's the decay of the Higgs boson into uh, two photons. And that's a good thing because our digital camera, as I showed you, can identify uh, photons as well as make precise measurements of their energy and momentum. So here's a digital uh, snapshot that Atlas took. It's one you put on your refrigerator. So this is a cross-section of the Atlas experiment. This is the inner detector. 
This is the electromagnetic calorimeter. And what do you see? You see two energy blobs here. And note that there's no track really uh, pointing to these energy blobs, and so these are photons. So that's how we identify uh, Higgs to two photon events. Now, unfortunately, I can't tell you for sure this is a Higgs to two photon event, and that's because there's many other physics processes that give rise to two photons. Uh, so what do we do? Well, first of all, only one in 100 billion proton-proton collisions give rise to a Higgs boson that decays into uh, two photons. And in fact, it's even more difficult than finding a needle in a haystack because the needle, the two photons from the Higgs boson, look exactly like everything else in the hay, i.e., uh, the background two photon events. So what do we do? Well, since we can identify the photons and measure their energy, we can go back and uh, use the Einstein equation again, E equals mc squared. If we measure precisely the energy of the photons, then we can determine the mass of the two-photon system. Now here we catch a little break. That is, the mass of the two-photon system for background events looks something like this. So this is the number of events as a function of the two-photon mass. And you can see that it's falling as a function of that two-photon mass. The two photons from the Higgs boson are expected to come from a mass associated with the Higgs. So those two photons would give a mass distribution looks something like this. So this is number of events, photon mass. So there's clearly some difference here. OK, so now we know how to identify uh, two photon events. And furthermore, we at least have the makings of an analysis. So let's go ahead and collect uh, some data. In fact, we'll collect two years of data. We won't really have to wait two years. Sped it up a little bit. So here we are in 2012 already. So what this is is the number of events versus the two photon mass. And there we are at the end of 2012. And what you see in the two photon mass is this falling distribution, just as we'd expect from the background. But right in the middle here, you see this little bump, that little excess of events. And in fact, if you went ahead and fit some function to this background and subtracted the data from that, you would see this result down here. So we have a small excess number of events in this diphoton mass spectrum. And this was at least part of the data that was used to discover the Higgs boson. Now, we actually searched in lots of other different decay channels. Uh, for example, two Zs I showed you a moment ago, uh, two Ws, et cetera. So we look in a lot of different places for the Higgs in addition to the two photons. But the real question that we have to ask or that we have to answer is, is that excess number of events, is that excess event real? Or is it just some random upward fluctuation of the background? Now, in particle physics, we have a way of calculating that random fluctuation probability. And we have a rule. And that rule is, if that fluctuation probability is less than 1 in 3 million, then we can claim that it's a real particle. It's not just some fluke fluctuation upward. So what is 1 in 3 million? Well, that's about the same probability you have as winning the million dollar 
uh, prize in, in Powerball, i.e., it's very, very, very you know, unlikely that what you observed was just a fluctuation of the background. So here, then, is the random fluctuation probability uh, in Atlas. Now, it gets a little tiresome to say one in three million time after time. So in physics, we call that the five sigma level. Uh, and that's because that's the same probability as five standard deviations in a Gaussian distribution. But it means the same thing. So this is the five sigma line. This is the one in three million line. And this is the random fluctuation probability. So if our probability is less than five sigma, then that means we have found something real. Here is that probability. And you can see, actually, that the fluke probability is about 2 times 10 to the minus ninth. So clearly, uh, we found something real and not just a, a random fluctuation. Here's our competitors. It's the same plot. Random fluctuation probability. Sorry, this is as a function of Higgs mass. Here's the 5 sigma line, the 1 in 3 million line. Note that they barely, barely you know, got under that 5 sigma uh, rule that you need to claim discovery. But they did. They were also able to show that their observed excess was something real and not just a, a fluke probability. In fact, these two plots were sort of the highlight of that Higgs discovery uh, announcement back in July of, of 2012. These were the main uh, results. So uh, the Higgs discovery was certainly you know, extremely important for particle physics because it plays such a fundamental role in the standard model. And I think the worldwide press that the Higgs discovery received was really a benefit to all of science, not just particle physics. But you may be sitting there thinking, well, this is all nice, but you know, what about me? What, how does the Higgs boson benefit my life? Well, I'd like to argue that it already has benefited your life. And that's because uh, there is significant technology transfer from particle physics research to mainstream society. Uh, and that has been occurring really since the beginning of particle physics research uh, in the 30s. Examples of this are this are technology transfer for diagnostic and therapeutic medicine, uh, for understanding uh, turbulent fluid flow, for the industrialization of superconducting magnets, etc. So I just wanted to pick two examples. Uh, one example is, uh, as many of you know, uh, cancer oftentimes is treated with something called a medical LINAC, which produces x-rays in order to uh, kill tumors. These medical LINACs have been around since the 1950s, and they were developed soon after uh, the particle physics LINACs were developed to do particle physics research. In fact, it's kind of a good story. Uh, the inventor of the cyclotron accelerator, his mother uh, had incurable cancer, and he treated her with radiation from uh, not the uh, cyclotron, but from a LINAC. And actually, she was cured and lived an additional uh, 15 years. Today, there's a new type of therapy that's used to treat uh, cancer. And that's called proton therapy or hadron therapy. In this type of therapy, one uses protons from a synchrotron, synchrotron uh, which is just like a much smaller version 
of the LHC synchrotron. It's the same machine, it's just uh, much smaller. And in fact, you may know that there's a hadron therapy facility being built right now out in the Mayo Clinic outside of uh, Scottsdale, and it will begin uh, accepting patients in 2015. So this is an example of technology transfer. Uh, here's another instance where particle physics research benefits computing. There was a guy named Tim Berners-Lee, uh, who was a computer scientist at CERN, and he was trying to figure out a way so that the physicists and engineers at CERN could share data. So he came up with something called the mesh, uh, which his boss is called vague but exciting. He went ahead and went forward with this, and that evolved into what's called the World Wide Web. So certainly everybody in the audience here has used the World Wide Web, if not minutely or daily, uh, you know, at least occasionally. And the origin of the World Wide Web uh, was basically the, a result of the desire in particle physics research to share data, to share technical information uh, between scientists and engineers, not just at CERN, but uh, throughout the world. The amount of data that we collected in order to discover the Higgs was about 10 petabytes. That's 10 million gigabytes. Or in other words, if you took like two miles worth of movie DVDs and piled them up, that's the same amount of data as were collected in order to discover the Higgs. Now we analyzed that data using a hardware and software system called the grid. And so basically when our group you know, submits jobs to analyze data, uh, we submit it to this grid and where that job runs, whether it runs in the US or South America or Asia, we don't know. In fact, we really don't care. All we care about is the job gets run. But I bring this up because back in 2006, uh, during the time of the bird flu epidemic, a smaller grid based on the LHC grid or that we use to analyze data was created. And it was created so that the researchers in Asia and Europe could evaluate, I think they evaluated like 300,000 uh, different compounds uh, in silico, which means uh, to simulate, in order to try to evaluate their effectiveness in, in fighting the avian flu. This is another example of uh, technology transfer. Uh, finally, and this isn't really just specific to particle physics, but maybe the biggest benefit society of particle physics research is the training of next generation students. Um, certainly, the students in particle physics learn how to think creatively, learn how to solve tough quantitative problems. That has application everywhere. The students in particle physics learn how to work in big groups to try to solve complex, pro complex problems. Uh, that has application everywhere as well. So okay, today uh, they're working on muon electronics, but tomorrow they might be in finance, or in industry, or in uh, medical physics, and hopefully they're leading uh, in those fields uh, at that time. Okay, so uh, finally, what's next after the Higgs boson? What do you do after you find the Higgs? Well, unfortunately, you do not go to Disneyland, and the reason that you don't is because there's still quite a bit to discover. Uh, there's still many, many problems that are unresolved in physics. So I'll give you a couple examples. Probably the most important one, or the most immediate one, is the particle we discovered really the Higgs boson. 
You know, perhaps it's some evil twin of the Higgs boson. And the way that we're going to answer that question is basically to collect more data to make precise measurements of its production properties, of its decay properties, of its intrinsic properties like spin, uh, in order to answer that question. And in fact, here's some preliminary data. This is on uh, the production data in different decay channels. So here's Higgs to gamma gamma, Higgs to two z's, et cetera. Our expectations are shown as this line called signal strength at one. And the data, of course, are the black points. And so the initial answer seems to be, at least down here, that we're pretty close to a signal strength of one. The initial answer seems to be, yes, this really is the Higgs boson, but we're going to collect more data starting in 2015 to more uh, definitively answer that question. Another problem is that, you know, I talked to you about the three forces, but we really didn't say much about gravity. Uh, so one question is, you know, why is gravity so weak compared to the other forces? And can we somehow unify it in the same way that we unified the weak and electromagnetic forces? In fact, gravity is about 10 to the 33 times more weak than the weak force even. So here's one idea in order to solve that problem. So imagine that, well, not imagine, we live in a three-dimensional world. So we're on this plane here. So all the particles and forces uh, are members of this three-dimensional world. But what if there's extra dimensions? And what if, furthermore, gravity, unlike all the other forces, is allowed to propagate into those extra dimensions? If that's the case, then you can imagine that gravity is weak, not because it's in intrinsically feeble, but rather because in our three-dimensional world, we're just really sampling a small fraction of gravity which is you know, propagating not only in our three dimensions, but elsewhere uh, in the bulk. So perhaps the next big thing discovered at the LHC will be particles that are associated with these extra dimensions. In fact, that's one of the things my research does. We do search for these particles. They're called Kaluza-Klein gluons, but they're particles associated with extra dimensions. Now, right now, we have not found any of these particles. We've excluded them having a mass of two trillion electron volts or smaller, but we're going to run again. So uh, perhaps starting in 2015, at running at a higher energy, we'll be able uh, to show that that's what comes next after the Higgs. Another thing is that in the universe, we know that there's a large amount of something called dark matter. Uh, and we know that dark matter exists because if you look at the rotational velocities of uh, stars in galaxies or galaxies in galaxy clusters, then their uh, measured velocity is much less than what one calculates. So think to our solar system, right? The further out you go from the sun, the smaller the rotational velocity of the planet. So that's why we would expect the rotational velocity of stars uh, to fall off like this. But that's not what we measure. We measure that it's almost uh, a constant value. And the reason that this is, or one way to explain this, is the existence of so-called dark matter that's permeating all, all space. And the reason we call it dark is just because it's non-luminous. Telescopes uh, cannot see it. So perhaps the next big discovery uh, at the LHC will be 
dark matter. We call these weakly interacting massive particles. But the bottom line is that perhaps in proton-proton collisions, we can produce uh, such dark matter. And there's many, many searches ongoing at the, uh, on ATLAS in order to try to uh, observe dark matter. So what about the LHC? What's going on there? So as I mentioned, right now there's a two-year shutdown. And the main goal of that shutdown is to reinforce and improve uh, the weak electrical splices between uh, the adjacent dipole magnets. Hopefully, in 2015, we'll finally be able to run at the higher energy, the design energy of the LHC of 14 TeV, and also at the design uh, intensity. So uh, what do we expect next after the Higgs? Although I gave you some possibilities, I think the real answer is we, we simply don't know. I mean, that's partly why particle physics is so much fun. You know, as an experimenter, you don't always know what's next around the corner. So uh, you'll just have to wait and, and see. So I definitely appreciate, I, at least I hope, that you've all learned a little about the uh, discovery of the Higgs boson, its importance, and some of the associated physics. So I think you're ready for the next step. Oops. Thank you all. Thank you for your attention. Thanks to everybody on the panel. If I could just ask you all to remain seated just for a few minutes. They had a bigger budget than I did. In exploration, there needs to be the set of people who have no rules, and they are going into the frontier. So the movie is called Particle Fever. I've never Fever. heard of a it moment was, in uh, history last where week. an entire field is hinging on a single event. The Large Hadron Collider, the biggest machine ever built, is finally going to turn on. You're you take experts. two things and you smash them together. You get a lot of stuff out of that collision, and you try to understand that stuff could be nothing other than just understanding everything. Little did I know when I started that the experiments would take 30 years, and here I am still not knowing. I really want to know the truth. The first time I ever saw it, I can remember walking in and just being stunned, like five stories completely filled with custom-designed, hand-soldered microelectronics. There are 10,000 people, over 100 nationalities. Ciao, ciao. 100,000 computers deal with the data. In fact, the World Wide Web was invented at CERN so that physicists could share the data. This is really my generation's only shot. Let's get started, everybody. Now comes the day of reckoning. Given the complexity, they're already about a week or two behind. We're saying that all their tools are breaking. It begs the question, what are the risks? It would be a catastrophe for physics. These helium leaks are really frustrating. You've got magnets sheared off their jacks. Completely catastrophic. You know why that occurred. We're at a fork in the road, and it's cranking up the suspense as much as it possibly can. We may discover additional space dimension, the mystery and the origin of the universe. We may be at the end of the road. The entire control room is like a group of six-year-olds whose birthday is next week. It's incredible that it's happened in my lifetime. Whatever we learn is going to have a dramatic impact on the way human beings think about the universe forever. 
So the comment about six-year-olds is a little too close to home. But nevertheless, uh, in conclusion, it's obvious that particle fever, you should catch it at a theory, theater new year, near you. Okay, thank you very much. the Higgs field come from? Where does the Higgs field come from? Uh, that's a good question. I mean, at some level, the Higgs field was, you know, added almost if by hand, you know, to the standard model. So it, it came out of the creative minds of Englert and Higgs. We don't have any explanation as to, you know, where it, what its origin is. Your last presentation actually anticipated my question because I was reading in a science magazine about this particle fever movie and I was wondering uh, where it is going to be shown because it probably won't have a very large audience and I, I want to know, is it going to be shown at the university? Where is it going to be shown? Can you all hear me? The loft, I've I'm Mari Jensen, I'm the Science Public Information Officer for the College of Science. And um, I've spoken with people at the loft cinema who, even before I, before I spoke to them, were trying to work to bring particle fever to Tucson. They have to work with the distributor to find out when it is they can bring it here. I don't know the answer to that question yet, but I'm looking forward to seeing it at the loft. So they'll be advertising that. And um, I will be letting sending out some stuff probably on the UA Science e-newsletter to let people know about it. Which but the Loft Cinema on Speedway, that's, that's pretty much more or less across from um, Wild Oats. Yeah, uh, going back to one of your earlier slides about the ocean and the wave. Yes. Looking at the distribution diagrams, it looks like you spotted a wave, how do you know that wave is a wave in the Higgs ocean, and how do you know it has the properties that required for the uh, completion of the standard model? So uh, I guess two questions, or two you know, parts to that. First of all, in physics, you know, particles are at some level equivalent to waves, so the fact that we observe the Higgs particle is equivalent to observing the Higgs boson wave, if you will. The way that we uh, know that it's the Higgs boson is, for example, the spin, the intrinsic angular momentum of the Higgs boson is supposed to be zero. We have ways through the angular distribution of those two photon events inferring what the spin is. We can't definitely say it's zero right now, but it really looks like that's what the spin is. Similarly, uh, the standard model predicts, for example, that two photon events should be produced, uh, you know, like one out of a thousand uh, times with respect to all the different decay possibilities. So we can measure that probability as well. Again, that, that was that signal strength uh, plot I showed you, our expectations of the properties of the Higgs that we measure 
agrees with the standard model expectations. So is there any way that you can get at the Higgs field without just looking at particles and assuming that there's a field, an ocean there? I mean, can you row your boat in this field? Is there some way we can get at it besides looking at waves? Uh, not, not to my knowledge, no. We have to look at the excitations. I'm curious about the name boson. Is it James Joyce again? Uh, I don't know that. <laughs> well, I mean, basically we call them bosons because they have integer spin properties as, compo as compared to fermions that have uh, half integer spin. What the origin of the name is, uh, unfortunately, is I, I don't know. Bose, the physicist. Oh, yeah, the Indi oh, physicist, yes. So thank you very much, everybody, for attending. Let's thank Ken again for a great talk.